I was born in a time when the majority of young people had lost faith in God for the same reason their elders had had it, without knowing why. And since the human spirit naturally tends to make judgments based on feelings instead of reason, most of these young people chose humanity to replace God. I, however, am the sort of person who is always on the fringe of what he belongs to, seeing not only the multitude he's a part of, but also the wide open spaces around it. That's why I didn't give up God as completely as they did, and I never accepted humanity. I reasoned that God, while improbable, might exist, in which case they should be worshipped, whereas humanity, being a mere biological idea and signifying nothing more than the animal species we belong to, was no more deserving of worship than any other animal species. The cult of humanity, with its rights of freedom and equality, always struck me as a revival of those ancient cults in which gods were like animals or had animal heads. And so, not knowing how to believe in God and unable to believe in an aggregate of animals, I, along with other people on the fringe, kept a distance from things, a distance commonly called decadence. Decadence is the total loss of unconsciousness, which is the very basis of life. Could it think the heart would stop beating? For those few like me who live without knowing how to have life, what's left but renunciation as our way and contemplation as our destiny? Not knowing nor able to know what religious life is, since faith isn't acquired through reason, and unable to have faith in or even react to the abstract notion of a person, well, we're left with the aesthetic contemplation of life as our reason for having a soul, aren't we? Impassive to the solemnity of any and all worlds, indifferent to the divine and disdainers of what is human, we uselessly surrender ourselves to pointless sensation, cultivated in a refined epicureanism, as befits our cerebral nerves. Retaining from science only its fundamental precept that everything is subject to fatal laws, which we cannot freely react to since the laws themselves determine all reactions, and seeing how this precept concurs with the more ancient one of the divine fatality of things, we abdicate from every effort like the weak-bodied from athletic endeavours, and we hunch over the book of our sensations like scrupulous scholars of feeling taking nothing seriously and recognizing our sensations as the only reality we have, for certain, we take refuge there, exploring them like large unknown countries. 
And if we apply ourselves diligently, not only to aesthetic contemplation, but also to the expression of its methods and results, it's because the poetry or prose we write, devoid of any desire to move anyone else's will or to mold anyone's understanding, is merely like when a reader reads out loud to fully objectify the subjective pleasure of reading, just as I am doing now. We're well aware that every creative work is imperfect and that our most dubious aesthetic contemplation will be the one whose object is what we write. But everything is imperfect. There's no sunset so lovely it couldn't be yet lovelier, no gentle breeze bringing us sleep that couldn't bring a yet sounder sleep. And so, contemplators of statues and mountains alike, enjoying both books and the passing days, and dreaming all things so as to transform them into our own substance, we will also write down descriptions and analyses which, when they're finished, will become extraneous things that we can enjoy as if they happened along one day. This isn't the viewpoint of pessimists like Vigny, for whom life was a prison in which he wove straw to keep busy and forget. To be a pessimist is to see everything tragically, an attitude that's both excessive and uncomfortable. While it's true that we ascribe no value to the work we produce and that we produce it to keep busy, we're not like the prisoner who busily weaves straw to forget about their fate. We're like that person who embroiders pillows for no other reason than to keep busy, just as I am doing now. I see life as a roadside inn where I have to stay until the coach from the abyss pulls up. I don't know where it will take me because I don't know anything. I could see this inn as a prison for I'm compelled to wait in it. I could see it as a social centre for it's here that I meet others. But I'm neither impatient nor common. I leave who will stay shut up in their rooms, sprawled out on beds where they sleeplessly wait, and leave who will chat in the parlours from where their songs and voices conveniently drift out here to me, with my stomach rumbling for breakfast. I'm sitting at the door, feasting my eyes and ears on the colours and sounds of the landscape, and I softly sing for myself alone wispy songs I compose while waiting. Night will fall on us all and the coach will pull up. I enjoy the breeze I'm given and the soul I was given to enjoy it with and I no longer question or seek. If what I write in the book of travellers or in the podcast of listeners can when read or heard by others at some future date, also entertain them on their journey, then fine. If they don't read it or listen to it or are not entertained, that's fine too.
sower. I've been meaning to write to you for a while. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't sure how to how to uh, address you in this voice note, so I thought I'd just start like that. Fernando, or Ferdinand, I guess in English, <clears throat> for me, is a character in The Tempest, in love with Miranda, uh, a sort of one-dimensional, maybe two-dimensional if you're lucky, uh, romantic fool, as I have often been, who says soppy stuff like, My mean task would be as heavy to me as odious, but the mistress which I serve quicken what's dead and makes my labours a pleasure. That sort of thing. That's, that's a Fernando, that's a Ferdinand. And have not all of us romantic fools spent days tidying and cooking for a beloved who is now in love with someone else? There she goes, away, away. But I can't seem to shake that besotted fool of a, a Fernando or a Ferdinand free from my imagination to replace it with you, Pessoa. You are not a Fernando, nor even a Fernando Pessoa to me, although you may of course be that to others who love you as I do. You are to me, well, you are Pessoa, <laughs> which functions equally well for my purposes here as the English translation of your surname, which means, as we all know, a person. This is the who that I'm addressing here, whoever may be listening to these words, you, Persoa, you, the still-alive Persoa, hearing me in this mp3 format, another living Persoa, another living consciousness, the two of us having found ourselves through this third, the Persoa of a text called the Book of Disquiet. As much a panther as a Pessoa, as a person, in my imagination anyway, and not a panther called Fernando either. I'm thinking instead of Rilke's panther, of whom we are told, his vision from the constantly passing bars has grown so weary that it cannot hold anything else. It seems to him there are a thousand bars, and behind the bars no world as he paces in cramped circles over and over the movement of his powerful soft strides is like a ritual dance around a center in which a mighty will stands paralyzed only at times the curtain of the pupils lifts quietly an image enters in rushes down through the tensed arrested muscles plunges into the heart and he's gone I see you Pessoa you as that panther who line after line paces around the cage of self the Enneagram 4 cage as I now understand this to be plotting your escape yet ultimately hemmed in by the absurdity of your very own consciousness the kind of consciousness delineated by Camus in his myth of Sisyphus, in his sip of tea. 
in his myth of Sisyphus, where he writes, quote, At this point in our efforts, we stand face to face with the irrational. We feel within us our longing for happiness and for reason, and in this way the absurd is born of this confrontation between human needs and the unreasonable silence of the world. This must not be forgotten. This must be clung to because the whole consequence of our lives may depend on it. The irrational, human longing and nostalgia and the absurd that is born of this encounter, these are the three characters in a drama that must necessarily end with all the logic of which an existence is capable. I don't know what you think, but I'm not sure if Camus means here that the drama or conflict in which the irrational, non-ideal reality of our lives brushes up very painfully at times against our irrational human-animal longings uh, might be resolved in some way using a kind of existential logic, a logic which he, Camus, is intent on bringing into this world? Or is it rather that these three characters, like all the rest, must end, must die, as you and I will too, with our half-written, half-lived experiential philosophies, our frequently ongoing but now deceased and still absurd lives, dead in the water where we once swam and played. This is really just an overcomplicated way for me to say that I am writing these words with the faith and good hope of someone slipping a note into the pocket of that coachman or mailman, that, that person who is traveling from the inn where you are living, traveling from inn to inn, carrying messages across the abyss of separation to those we have yet to meet in the hope that this thing we call a life, my life in this case, might become significantly and meaningfully intertwined with yours. And why should it not happen on a podcast as opposed to Hinge or Bumble or Field or OkCupid or wherever? I guess. Is that not at least the unconscious wish that lies at the heart of all of your writing, too, Pessoa? To step out from the fringes of experience where you and me are living our cramped and crimped and crab-like ways uh, of being our comfortable but also somewhat vapid lives of aesthetic contemplation, listening to podcasts, reading books, watching films, TV series, only to be met in that stepping out, either by a kind of God, which neither of us believes in, so let's, I don't know, replace that with a more hazy term like the numinous, or perhaps the next best thing, maybe even something wholly better than the next best thing, a human creature, a Miranda, or maybe for you, Pessoa, a Max, who shares with us an essential way of being in the world, something which corresponds to our being, even though we have nothing but language to communicate this connection to each other 
through and with. And even if this other being, this other Pessoa, is not entirely complicit with the contours of our soul, as, of course, no one can fully be, at least they possess a sensibility that chafes with ours in a creative or interesting fashion. If that is you, hello, Pessoa, hello. Anyway, as another plane flies over, as I find myself on the Heathrow flight path, this is how I intend to live our book of disquiet, Pessoa, reading your words and then writing something back, even if that writing doesn't always, maybe never, directly reflects what I've just read as a piece of literary criticism should. The world, as far as I perceive it to be, doesn't really need more book of disquiet lit crit. Yours is a text that, let's face it, contains its own hermeneutics. To read it, and especially to speak it, as we scrupulous scholars of feeling, is to know it, is to know you, is to know ourselves. So we don't need more of that. But what I think I would like to do here is simply to shelter for a while in the shade of your sensibility, Fernando Pessoa, a shade which often feels like coming home to the self I call me, the reason why I guess I play the audiobook of your book when going to sleep most nights. Let someone else be me for now, I think, as I drift off into the relief of unconsciousness. Let someone else be this person, this Pessoa, and you fulfill that position for me, Pessoa, so beautifully. Thank you. I wish I could tell you, the you who wrote these words, that I love you, Pessoa, most especially the you written down in the fragments of yourself collected together in that book-length text published by Penguin and translated by Richard Zenith known as the Book of Disquiet. I could say more, much more, particularly as a sexual four, but I've decided for this project to not exceed your own word count. And in this first transmission of your disquieting communication, you write no more than a thousand words. 911, I counted them. I have already broken my promise to not exceed your words with mine because I'm already over a thousand. But there we go. The perils of four. But we needed to start somewhere together. And now we have. Ciao for now, my friend. Write to me if you like. Tell me what's most alive in your thoughts, and especially in your heart, Pessoa. I promise to write back. Ciao for now. Blind date with the chancer, we had oysters and dry lancers, and the check when it arrived, we went touch, 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 touch. A redder shade of neck on a whiter shade of trash, and this emery 